Is social distancing keeping you from a nail salon? Well, don't worry. Sexy Boss Babe has you covered. Introducing Quick Nails, the do-it-yourself salon manicure in five minutes. They last seven to ten days, are cruelty-free, vegan, recyclable, reusable, and every purchase supports foster youth and sex trafficking survivors. You can look good and change the world. Visit SexyBossBabe.com to get a box today. Create a free account to get VIP pricing and benefits. She's a one-woman financial advice powerhouse with 10 New York Times bestsellers and winner of two Emmys for her TV show on CNBC. We are proud to say the Sexy Boss Babe podcast is loved and listened to by Susie Orman, the world's number one expert on personal finance. Learn about investing in financial success directly from Susie on her podcast, Women and Money and the Men Smart Enough to Listen, available now on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most platforms. Hi, everyone. This is Arzo, and you're listening to the Sexy Boss Babe podcast. I am so excited to introduce today's guest. She is the number one female financial advisor in America and arguably the world. She's hosted her own TV show on NBC for over a decade. She has written and published 10 New York Times bestsellers about personal finance. She was named twice to the Time 100 list of influential people. She's a two-time Emmy winner and has won eight Gracie Awards. She's written co-produced and hosted nine PBS specials. She has been a guest on the Oprah Winfrey Show 29 times and Larry King Live more than 30 times. I am incredibly humbled to introduce Susie Orman. Welcome to the show, Susie. Arzo, thank you, but I have one correction for you. Please. I I am not the most world female, world's most recognized finance, personal finance expert. I am the world's most recognized. It wouldn't matter if I were a man or a woman. I am it, baby doll. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. I love it. I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, you, you absolutely are. And I just, I grew up watching your show, my mother and I, my aunt. So it is just such an honor, and I'm so excited to have you here, especially in today's pandemic climate. I think it is yeah. so important for women to hear what you have to say, because so many right now are losing their jobs, they're closing down their businesses, um, and people are scared. And what I like about you is that you started from humble beginnings. You didn't start with anything, and you built yourself up from nothing. So I would just love if you could just start sharing with us your your story from from that from that time. Yeah, you know, it, the story really begins with that I was a lousy student, <laughs> really lousy, and that you know I had dyslexia, so I really couldn't read. Um, nobody thought I would ever amount to anything. So I was always told that one day maybe I can be a waitress and whatever. And I thought that was fabulous because I just think waitresses and waiters are the best things ever. So after four years of going to the University of Illinois and never getting a grade above a C because I was from Chicago at the time, um, I went with my girlfriend and we got in a van 
And we ended up in Berkeley, California, living on the streets for three months because we had at, we had three hundred dollars to our name, and that was it. Oh my God! <laughs> my parents had no money. My mother was a secretary, sold Avon on the side. My father was sick almost his entire life because he got caught in a fire trying to save his cash register when I was about 13 or 14 years of age. So he ended up with emphysema. So my family never had any money. So I knew that if anything was going to ever happen in my life, I was going to be the one to make it happen. I end up in Berkeley, California, living on the streets for three months in my van with Lori, my girlfriend. And somehow I then landed my dream job at the Buttercup Bakery as a waitress. Loved it. Oh, my gosh. And I was a waitress all the way from 1973 to 1980 when I was now 29 years of age. So for seven years, I was a waitress and I made $400 a month. And then one day I had this brilliant idea that I could open up my own restaurant. I wanted my own business. I was tired of everybody I worked for at the Buttercup Bakery there. They were making a fortune off of me, and I was making $400 a month because they were doing all these ideas I had. So I knew my parents had absolutely no money. And, and one day, a man walked in who I'd been waiting on for seven years, and he said, what's wrong, sunshine? You don't look happy. And then I told Fred Hasbrook was his name, the story of Fred I'm never going to be anything. I want to open up my own restaurant, but I'm never going to have that kind of money. And he went down, you know, he went and sat down. And before he was, he left that day, he came back to the counter that I was standing at and he handed me checks and commitments totaling $50,000. That is insane. Where did this, where did this money come from? It came from all the people that I had been waiting on. For all those years with love and appreciation because I got to be a waitress. I was thrilled that I was a waitress. And I thought I'd be a waitress for my entire life at my own restaurant as time went on. But I loved that. And he went back and he told everybody that was in the restaurant that day the story about how I wasn't happy and why. And they all wrote checks for $2,000. 3000 One wrote it for $15,000. And the people who didn't have their checkbooks back then with them, they did a little commitment that they would give, bring in the check the next day. And so I looked at him and I said, Fred, are these checks going to bounce like all mine do? <laughs> And he said, no, Susie, this is for you to be paid back in 10 years if you can with no interest. Right, so I said, so what should I do with this money? And he said, take it down to the Merrill Lynch in Oakland and open up a money market account. Well, you know, I said, I don't know what a money market account is, and I do not know what a Merrill Lynch is. And for those of you who may not know, a Merrill Lynch at the time was one of the main brokerage firms in the United States of America. And so I did that. And to make a very long story short, the broker of the day, the person who greets you to invest your money for you when you walk in, was a man by the name of Randy. And Randy said to me, oh, $50,000. How would you like to make a quick 100 or $200 a week by investing this money? 
And I went, yeah, even though Fred told me to put it in a money market account, which was like a savings account back then, still is today. I said, how do you do that? And he said, just sign here on the bottom line. And I signed. Here's this fancy guy in this fancy office. I did what he told me. I left. He then filled out all the paperwork to make it look like I was a very wealthy and sophisticated investor. And to make a very long story short, again, within three months, all $50,000 was lost. That is, I'm sure it was so heartbreaking because you had spent so many years as a waitress and then you got this, you know, break where, you know, everybody believed in you and loved you because of your spirit and your energy and gave you this little piece of, of, of the, the first start of your dream. And then you, you lost it uh, through this experience. Um, and, and, and I want to ask you about this, about this next step, but before I do, if you could just tell me a little bit about that time when you were a waitress and were you struggling financially? Because you said that, you know, you bounce checks and things like that. What, what kept you through that time going and believing in this dream? Well, I never knew that I could be anything other than a waitress, right? I thought that was what I was meant to be because growing up from grammar school through high school, through college, that's what I did. I had to pay to send myself through college. I had to pay for everything. And so, and that's the only thing I knew how to do. And there, I had an idol and her name was Helen. And Helen was this woman who was a lot older than me. She was in her sixties and she had been a waitress at the Buttercup Bakery forever. And she had red hair and, you know, as though she had it in a beehive and she smoked cigarettes And I thought she was the coolest woman I had ever met. And I wanted to be just like Helen when I grew up. Right. And she was my idol because we would talk about things. We would take our breaks together. And I didn't have anybody else really to look up to. But I looked up to her. So the whole time I was a waitress, I thought I was the luckiest person in the world. Wow. wow. I loved what I did. And, and it wasn't until the very last year that I watched the Buttercup Bakery go from a little corner restaurant with no seats really to sit in to the space next door to almost the entire half a block based on my ideas that I would say, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. Let's start doing this. And they would listen to me. They would do it. And they were the ones making all the money. And I thought, oh, I should own my own restaurant. I can do that if I only have the money. So those years of me being a restaurant, me being a waitress were probably even to this day, some of the greatest years of my life. I love that you said that because I think people forget that it's true. In those challenging times sometimes, those humble, challenging times, some of the most beautiful life lessons, uh, growth happens during those years. Um, so that's amazing that after everything you have accomplished, and you've accomplished it all, you can still yeah. say that that was one of your, your most memorable time of your life. And um, Arzo, it was during those years that I learned how to serve people. Mm-hmm. That I learned how to serve people with with gratitude and graciousness and to serve them with joy. So they enjoyed their breakfast. And this was a little tiny place that you didn't get tips. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I did that to get the tips. I did that for the joy of doing it and having a relationship with the people. And to this day, Arzo, 
I'm still doing that. I'm just now serving up a plate of financial advice. But I stand in service to every single person who calls in to, you know, any of my shows or when I'm on air or sends in an email to my Women in Money podcast that I have. And I try to answer every single one of those questions because they deserve it, Arzo. They deserve it because it's, it's, they just, you know, when they reach out, when somebody reaches out to be helped about money, the person giving them the advice back should be somebody who wants to serve them, not make money on their own. I absolutely agree with that. And I love that you brought up service, giving back and gratitude. And that just seems to be what works. And it's something that we talk about a lot uh, in some of our other podcasts on leadership, uh, being in gratitude and serving others. And when you come from that place, um, everything just, it seems like unfolds in the right way for you. Yes. However, I just, I have to say this to you, however, it's, you can serve others, but you better be serving yourself as well. The problem I have found with women over all the 35 years now that I've been doing this, they will give more of themselves Mm -hmm. than they will give to themselves. So I don't know, you said that you used to watch my show and I ended every show that was on CNBC actually with the saying, people first, then money, then things. And the women would take that saying, Arzo, to mean I have to serve everybody. I have to take care of everybody before me. That's never how I meant it. Right. I always meant it. You first, ladies, take care of yourself first. You all need to learn how to say yes to yourself Versus no out of fear that somebody else isn't going to like you or love you or be there for you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So I just wanted us to be clear on that. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point um, because you are right. You know, serving as a, as a leader, it's, it's one thing to serve your people and your constituents, but you're right. Um, Making sure, and I, I don't like to use the word selfish, but self serving yourself first. I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's an empowerment, uh, 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 perspective and it sets boundaries. And it also does something else very interesting that when you're especially setting up your own little business or your business that then becomes a big business Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, so many women keep their businesses going simply to make sure that their employees can have a paycheck. But yet when I talk to them, I go, well, how much money have you put aside for yourself? Mm -hmm. They go, nothing. I go, how much credit card debt do you have? They go about $30,000 that I've taken out to keep the business going. No, because what happens is by you doing that, not only are you doing yourself a disservice because you're not building up your own retirement, your own stuff, you're letting people falsely work for you. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that they think they have a secure job. Because you haven't told them how you're struggling Mm. and they're getting older and they're getting older. And then all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. And now you have to close down. And now what are they going to do? Were they better off when they were younger or whatever that you were just honest with them so that maybe they could leave working for you and go to work for somebody that still is in business today. Mm. We all really have to think about, motivation and when is helping hurting 
And when is hurting helping? I'm just mind blown right now. <laughs> I think that's, I don't think I've ever heard anybody um, explain that in, in such a way, because I think you're right. And especially for small businesses, people are really just trying to, to, to put in that sweat and keep the doors open for their employees. But you're right. If you're not scaling, if you're not growing, are you truly helping? Um, yeah. and, and sometimes you can be really, truly hurting somebody's entire future. And it's because you had good intentions. You just made the wrong decision. Yeah. So you should always be honest with everybody and tell everybody I'm struggling. I don't know how long this will continue. And if you have to keep going into debt as well as not putting any money away for you, your loved ones, your families, then you have to be strong, ladies. Mm -hmm. You have to be stronger than you've ever been in your entire life. And then you have to say, you know what? It's time to close. However, if you do it right and you give it all you have and you're able to put a little money away for yourself and you're scaling correctly, then you can grow from one store to two stores to three stores or for whatever. But you have to do this. You have to value yourself because when you undervalue who you are, the world will undervalue what you do. And when you undervalue what you do, the world will undervalue who you are. So I know that I just, you know, I know you have other questions to ask me, but I do just want to, with your permission, Arzo, tell one important story that will really bring this to home. Absolutely, so, but up to please. You. Absolutely, right. please. It was, I had been appearing on CNBC and they weren't paying me. I was just so thrilled to be able to be on CNBC. Whoever thought Susie Orman would be on CNBC. And then I was offered my own show on CNBC. And this is now back in the year 2000, so about 20 years ago now. And they wanted me to sign a five-year contract. And I said, no, I can't sign a five-year contract because I don't know that I'm going to want to do this for five years. Mm -hmm. I've never done this before. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something that I may like. So I can't sign a five-year contract. They said, all right, if you don't sign a five-year contract, we're not going to pay you. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> right? I said, I've already was a you know, successful author. Nine Steps to Financial Freedom had already come out. It was the number one book you know, of 1998 of all nonfiction hardback books. So I said, I don't care. I don't need the money. I just want to see if I love doing what I'm doing. Because mm -hmm. I never want to spend one day of my life doing something I don't want to do. Because mm -hmm. that, Arzo, is when you put yourself in prison and you have regrets. And then your energy starts to change. So they said, okay, fine with us. That first year, the show immediately went to the number one rated show on CNBC. And stayed that way, just so you know, for 13 years. Mm -hmm. And after that one show for that year, what did that, they then said, oh, well, you don't have a contract. I said, I know I don't have a contract. Now you're going to put me on a yearly contract just the way that I wanted. And you are going to pay me a whole lot more than you originally offered me. And you're going to pay me that for the year I did not get a salary. And they said, yes, ma'am, we most certainly will. Wow. 
That is amazing. And it's because you put your foot down and you said, this is what I'm worth. This is my value. And you valued yourself and they valued you as a result. However, the reason I was able to do that is because I had already saved money. Mm. I already had money. Mm. So I tell you that everybody, not so much to impress you, although you maybe should be, but I really (laughs) tell you that to inspire you. Because if you're always going from paycheck to paycheck, cash withdrawal on a credit card from cash withdrawal, then you never have your power. And the number one law of money is power attracts and powerlessness repels. So if you're Mm. out there and you're listening to me, please understand that the thing that renders you the most powerless in life is when you have debt because debt is bondage. So if you want to be successful beyond your wildest dreams, you have to get out of debt or at least start to make attempts to do so little by little. And you have to have at least an eight month emergency fund so that if something like this happens, this pandemic happens or something happens again, You don't have to be freaked out because your business is closed and who knows when it's going to open. So now you're going to lose your apartment and now you can't pay your utility bills and now you can't pay your car payment and you can't keep your insurance going. And now you've just rendered yourself the most powerless of all. So next time you start to think, I deserve that vacation. I'm going to take it. Oh, you know what? I deserve a newer car. I've been driving this one for four years now. I want you to never forget what the world is going through right now and to please make it your number one priority more than anything you can do, anything you can buy, any restaurant you can go out to, whatever it is to make it your number one priority that you start contributing to an eight month emergency fund for yourself. I think that's um, such incredible, incredible advice, especially right now. Um, and, and even in the last few years, I think people have really just, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, I think confusion between, you know, what self-love means, which is, you know, taking care of yourself versus, Hey, I should buy this because I deserve it. And when you do that, a lot of times it's, it's hurting you more than it's helping you, like you said, because then you don't have that backup. Yeah. You know, even though I'm a seriously, seriously wealthy woman, Arzo, and I'm really proud when I say that I have tens and tens and tens and tens and tens and I keep going to millions of dollars. (laughs) And I'm really proud of that. And I'm not ashamed to say that like, oh, I'm bragging. I am not. I can tell you this. If I can do what I've done, there is not one person listening to this podcast today that can't do it as well. Not by maybe being the world's personal finance expert, but by being the absolute renowned expert in whatever field you happen to be in. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's so it's really important, though, that you have to go at it with such intention and such purity. And there's nothing wrong with you putting yourself first. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That's great advice. And, and, and today, what about the women that didn't save, you know, uh, that, that, uh, that ended up not doing yeah. that. And now we're here today and yeah. people are losing their jobs or they are losing their businesses. What can they learn from this? What can yeah. they look towards? Yeah. I think everybody needs to make a journal. 
And I think the journal needs to have a title called on it, Lessons Learned. And all of you are going to have to decide what lessons did you learn from what you are experiencing right now? Did you make wrong choices in your life? Did you go on vacation when you really didn't have the money to do so, so you put it on your credit card? And because you put it on your credit card now, you don't have that available credit limit to use to pay your bills. Did you, like I said previously, buy a new car when really you didn't need a new car? How many times do you really go out to eat or stop somewhere because it's just easier because you are so tired? You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to tell you that I was a very wealthy woman was to also to tell you as a wealthy woman, maybe you would be surprised to know if I eat out more than 10 times a year, I've eaten out a lot. I have one car and that one car is 10 years old and that car is going to last me another five years, right? It's like I hardly ever spend money and go on a vacation, For the 10 years when I was first building the Susie Orman brand, I did not spend one day in the same city for 10 years. I worked seven days a week, 20 hours a day, and I never took a vacation because I had my eyes on the goal. So ladies, what is your goal? What is your dream for yourself? How bad do you want that dream to come a reality versus a vacation here or a new outfit? I'm still wearing the same pants. You know, I was just with Oprah a few months ago on one of her Vision 2020 tours. And, you know, I went on stage and essentially it was like, oh, I had the same pants on that I had on Oprah when I first interviewed with you over 20, you know, in 1998. Mm -hmm. I had the same shoes, the same earrings. I have one pair of earrings. I don't even have a pocketbook. How much do you pay for a pocketbook and how many do you have? My shoes, I get resold. Now, it's not because I'm a pauper, obviously. It's because I get more pleasure out of saving than I do spending. And I will never forget what it was like not to have money, to get all the change out of one of those big water bottles in order to take it to Bank of America because I was overdrawn by $600. And thank God I had $600 of change in there. I will never forget where I came from. And my goal is to have more money here than when I came and to leave it to charity for those people who will really need it. That's where all my money is going to go, but not to buy things that are absolutely unnecessary. What I'm hearing from everything that you're saying is that it is about mindset. And it sounds to me, and I think, you know, we've all seen it that especially our generation doesn't have that saving mindset. It has the spending mindset, following what celebrities do and trying to mimic that lifestyle as opposed to thinking about the future. And it's all about the focus has been on nice things, um, which I think a lot of it, it's ego-based. And if we change our mindset, it it, it can really change and shift our, our relationship with money that can actually help us. Yeah. You know, it was in 1998 when the book Nine Steps to Financial Freedom hit big and it was selling like a million copies at a time. And an author gets about four dollars per book. So I'll just give you an idea of 
that gives you an idea of the millions of dollars that were coming into me. And I remember being in New York City and I was going to have to be there to be on the Today Show and all these things all the time. And I was going to buy an apartment. And everybody was telling me, oh, Susie, you can afford a multi-million dollar apartment on Park Avenue. I ended up buying a little tiny apartment for $250,000. That was it, right? Because here's the key, everybody. When do you buy what you need versus what you can afford when you can afford more than what you need? So I ask all of you, every time before you make a purchase, ask yourself, is this a need or is this a want? If it's a want, let it go. If it's a need, buy it. And then one day, years from now, when you look back and you're a multimillionaire as well, you'll remember this podcast that you heard right here. I love it. I think it's it's such great, great advice. Um, Tony Co. I don't know if you've heard of her. She was the founder of the cosmetic line NYX. Um, built this amazing business over the course of 15 years and then sold it to L'Oreal for about $500 million. And she talks, you know, says something similar. She said, I didn't spend my money on anything. When I sold to L'Oreal, I went in and bought myself 10 Birkin bags all in one day. (laughs) 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 But that's when she was already, you know, she had $500 million in her pocket. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. And one, one thing about that, which is interesting When you do get a lot of money, all of a sudden, all the things that you thought you really wanted isn't what you really want. What you want is peace of mind. You want to have control over the money and know how to invest it. And you never want to spend one second doing anything you don't want to do. It's really just that simple because by then you've already figured out things are never going to make you happy. Things will never define you. You will make yourself happy and you will define the things around you. Oh, that's just so much wisdom. And now you're talking about values. You talked about having the right mindset and then getting your values in order. If your values are in order, then that's really what matters in the big picture of life. Yeah, that's it's actually it's the only thing that matters. You know, I always say to people, Arzo, you never see a Brinks truck at a funeral, right? So you can't take your money with you. Mm -hmm. So then you're all going to have to decide what is the goal of money? Why do you all want all this money? And if you think the key to happiness is having a lot of money, I know multi-billionaires who are just so miserable, it's not even funny. Mm -hmm. Now, lack of money will make you miserable, absolutely. But money is not the key to happiness. It is not. Knowing yourself, standing in your own truth, right? Knowing your own thoughts, giving to yourself as much as you give others and to have the intention to make your world and this world a better place and being kind to people and gracious to people. That is the key to happiness. That is just so insightful. And you mentioned that you know, you've had the same pair of shoes and the same earrings and the same pants for many, many years. And your goal is that at the end of all this, I want to leave my wealth to others, to charity. Why do you want to do that? You've accumulated all of this. Why? Because there will always be people in this world that for whatever reason need help, whether it's physical or psychological or emotional, 
my real love really are financially abused women who have been abused by men. It's not even, and women as well sometimes. It's not even funny. And so people, some reasons, Arzo, and I don't know why this happens, but some people really need help and they can't turn it around. And maybe they'll never be able to. And just because they can't doesn't mean that they shouldn't have something in their lives to make their lives easier. And so, you know, I talk to those women all the time, thousands of them. And it's, it's, they've touched my hearts and to no fault of their own, really. They've ended up in situations that I'm not sure they'll ever get out of, but that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't help them. You are just filled with so much wisdom. And now you're talking about compassion. And I love it because for Sexy Boss, we have our theme for 2020 was let this be the year of compassion. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. And you're someone that has accumulated an incredible amount of wealth, fame, celebrity, um, the things that you've been exposed to. And yet your head is on so straight with, you know, with regards to mindset, with regards to values, with regards to compassion. And my next question was going to be um, asking you specifically about your work with domestic violence um, survivors. Yeah. I myself is, uh, uh, um, am uh, a survivor. I speak to other survivors. Um, and, you know, my abuse was, you know, emotional and mental, some physical, definitely financial. And also that stems a little bit from my own father. I, I was financially abused by my own father. Um, so those things, you know, they, they create those patterns and those cycles and then you find yourself in those things. So what, why is that a cause that you align yourself with? Well, what happened was, um, I don't know if it was a year or two years ago now, but that Avon had asked me if I would come and interview seven women who were survivors of domestic abuse. I said, sure, I would love to do that. And I went and I interviewed them. And I noticed a pattern because I did all in one, you know, in one day. Every single one of them started the same way. They all were, you know, not only physically, psychologically, and emotionally abused, they all were financially abused. But when I would talk to them about, so you're financially abused, not one of them had a clue what I was talking about. Because when you're financially abused, there's no black and blue mark. They were used to broken bones and all kinds of abuse, but they thought it was normal that they should go to work and give their paycheck to their spouse or to their boyfriend or to their girlfriend. And every one of them looked at me and went, oh, my God, I've been financially abused. I didn't even know that was such a term. Yeah. And so from there, that's where I got totally interested because I realized that CNN would interview me and we would play these interviews that you can actually see on the domestic, you know, National Domestic Abuse Hotline. If you go to their website, they're all there. And the audio versions of them actually are on the Women in Money podcast, so you can go back and find them, right? But it was, I would talk to people at CNN and they'd say, Wanna, what do you want to talk about today, Susie? I'd say financial abuse. And they'd go, what is that? Every producer from every major show would say, well, what is that? And I went, oh, we got a problem here because wow. one out of four women in the United States suffers from financial abuse. One in eight women suffers 
from breast cancer. So do you think about those, how many women are financially abused? Thank you so much for using your voice and using your platform to raise awareness um, on, on this because you're right. Everybody's focusing on the things that are more popular, the more popular causes, but these are the causes, uh, domestic violence, financial abuse of, of women, and women are oppressed. It's something that I talk about when I do live events with, with women in our groups. Uh, women have been oppressed for so long, and these patterns are, are, have, have existed and, and, and continue through generations. And this is the outcome, yeah. and it's, it's part of why we are not ahead when it comes to money as, as a gender. Yeah. But I think it's also very important that we don't dwell in the past of that I'm never going to be able to do anything. I'm never going to be able to get over the abuse. I'm always going to be whatever. So don't use the excuse of abuse to keep you from being who you were born to be. I was sexually abused by my father. Um, I've suffered physical abuse as well that way. And look at me today. So look forward, ladies. Don't look back. And sometimes people say to me, Susie, do you have any regrets? Do you wish that you hadn't been abused? And I always say to them, are you kidding me? Everything I've been through has made me who I am today. It has given me the viewpoint of compassion. I, un I can identify with poverty because I grew up on the south side of Chicago. My parents had no money. I can identify with those of you who have been abused because I was abused. I can identify with those of you who don't think you're smart enough to ever achieve because you have dyslexia or you never got good grades or whatever it would be. I don't think I ever got a grade above a C. Right. So it's like, so I can identify with you and you can then identify with me. So identify and identification is what creates true compassion. And so I am so grateful that all those things happened to me because now I stand in the truth of who I am because of those things. I have no regrets. And you've used your story to empower you as opposed to hold you back and, and pull you down. Correct. That's amazing. Um, so at what point, I know we, we, we totally transgressed, but I loved where this went. <laughs> um, uh, what, at what point did, did you face that turning point? Because, you know, when we first started, we did talk about uh, you having the waitress job and then getting into Merrill Lynch and, you know, this person taking all your money and losing it. What was that turning point for you? Uh, because, again, you started out from scratch after that. So what yeah, was that the turning point? The turning point was, is that during the three months that Randy was his name, the broker was investing the money, I started to take an interest in it. And I realized pretty much a month into it, he was going to lose all the money. And so I, these people had lent me $50,000, Arzo, and they didn't have the money to lose, even though they said it was okay if I didn't pay them back. They were salesmen. They were really, you know, construction workers. They didn't have a lot of money. And so I thought to myself, oh, I can just be a broker. They make you broker. I then went in to interview for a job to get, make another long story short. I was told by the manager that women belong barefoot and pregnant oh. and that it was, however, 1980 affirmative action. Merrill Lynch had no women brokers at the time working for them. So I was told that I would be hired, but I would be fired in six months. And of course, I always had a certain spirit about me. And I asked, well, how much are you going to pay me to make me pregnant? And he said, $1,500 <laughs> a month. 
And it didn't take me long to realize 1500 a month times six months was $9,000, which was two and a half years back at the Buttercup Bakery, which I was more than happy to go back to because I loved it so. So I thought, okay. So before I knew it, I'm there. And again, to make a long story short, you know, I've been, I've been a lesbian. I've been gay my entire life. And there was an operations manager at Merrill Lynch at the time that was also gay. And I never hit the fact that I was gay. And one day he came up to me and he told me that what Merrill Lynch had done was illegal because they had a crooked broker. Randy was a crooked broker. So he gave me the name of a lawyer um, that he thought I should talk to. I went and I saw this lawyer. The lawyer took the case on contingency. I ended up suing Merrill Lynch while I still worked for them because I sued them. They couldn't fire me. And in two years later, by the time the court, the case, you know, the, it came to court, I was their number six producing broker. Right. So, and the rest is history from there. Wow. Wow. So at what point did you, um, leave Merrill Lynch and really start your media career and your publishing career and became a writer and all of a sudden just became yeah. this huge personality. Yeah. In 1983, I left Merrill Lynch to become a vice president of investments for Prudential-based securities. And they were paying me a lot of money to leave Merrill Lynch. And I was already mad at Merrill Lynch for other things at the time that they were doing. And so I go to work for Prudential. I stay there for three years. And then in 1987, I started my own firm. In 1995, I decided I was very, very successful. And in 1995, I wanted to write a book simply to impress my clients, that I could give them a book, right? And that was the only reason I wanted to write a book. And so I wrote a book, and it was called You've Earned It, Don't Lose It. And nobody really wanted it. They all felt like, oh, 1995, a woman writing a finance book? I don't think so. One publisher, all the major publishers turned me down. One woman said, well, let me look at it. Come meet me if you're ever in New York. I went for it. She loved me. She said, we're going to give you a $10,000 advance for this book. And we're going to send you on a book tour. And I went, really? I just wanted this book to give to my clients. I, she sent me on a 24-city book tour with the first print run of being 15,000 copies. That print run was sold out within two weeks, because I was going on all these shows in every single city, their morning shows. And before you knew it, the book was just skyrocketing. Somehow they got me on QVC, and because no author had ever been able to sell anything other than a cookbook, because you can't demonstrate another kind of book mm -hmm. on QVC. I go on QVC, and I put my phone number in the book. And I look in the screen, I go, you know, everybody, it all goes back to service. If any of you need help, my phone number's in the book, call me and I'll call you back. Well, that book went on to sell 800,000 copies. I made 80 calls a day for God knows how many years back to all the people that called in. Then I started to teach a class called the Nine Steps to Financial Freedom for Avon life design back then. And that book, what, what I kept the copyright to it. That course became very successful. And then I got a call from the Oprah producers, um, you know, 
just saying, would you like to come on the Oprah Winfrey show? And that was a few years later, and the rest is kind of history. But a very quick story about that. When I was first called by the Oprah Winfrey show by a producer by the name of Katie Davis, I said, well, what's the topic? And she said, the spiritual side of divorce. And I said, there's no such thing as the (laughs) spiritual side of divorce. I'm not your right person. She said, Susie Orman, we are inviting you to come on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I said to her, Oprah Winfrey deserves the best possible guest for that type of topic. And I am not it. Right? And I refused to go on the show. And a month later, I got a call and she said, Susie, we have been looking for somebody to do this. I'm telling you, you are the right person. I said, and I'm telling you, I'm not. Again, she went back and I said to her, if you can't find somebody else in two weeks, fine, I'll come on the show. And now Oprah is doing her show in Texas because she had been sued for the beef thing that she did. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I end up saying, yes, I go there. They have one and a half minutes for me to do an interview on that show. And Oprah comes on the set and she says to me, so Susie Orman, what is the key to life? What is the key to happiness? Or actually it was, what is the key to life? Mm -hmm. And I said to her, when you can be as happy in your sadness as you are in your happiness, Mm -hmm. Oprah, then you know the key to life. Mm -hmm. She then looked at me and said, you were going to do our show on you and walked off the set a minute on the show. That was it. Wow. And I went, okay now. And the rest is all history. Wow. Wow. What did you think in that moment when that happened? Well, Katie came back on and said, I told you, if Oprah just saw you, of course she was going to want you back on. And I said, thanks, Katie. Cause, but, <laughs> but, but, and then I was on and I was on and I was on. And then a very funny thing is Oprah wanted me on once a week with Dr. Phil and mm-hmm. Yamla and all these people. I said, yeah. no, Oprah, if you have me on once a week, people are going to hate you and they're going to hate me because they can't take talking about money once a week. They can't do it. So again, I said no to her. But I said no out of what would be good for Oprah, not what was going to be good for me. And because I did that today, today, I am Susie Orman. Because I did what was right versus doing what was easy. The just nuggets of wisdom that you share. And again, this is an example of selflessness. I mean, who doesn't want to have that opportunity to be on the Oprah Winfrey show and you had it and you chose integrity over that opportunity and the right opportunity came for you. And it just obviously just changed your life. Yeah. Fascinating, right? It was, um, yeah. So if you always put integrity and the truth and your good intention for others before you put them for yourself, um, then all kinds of things will, will happen in your life. Because, you know, my publisher back then was like, you said no to the Oprah Winfrey show. Susie, we send every book we have because if the book is on Oprah, everything's going to whatever. And I'm like, but it wouldn't be good for her. I don't know the spiritual side of divorce. Here we are. These are such amazing and here we and are. Think, great lessons. Um, there's, there's a lot of just female entrepreneurs that, um, that I interact with and, and that are just at those stages where they're building their businesses. And, you know, everybody's hungry. Everybody's hungry. But 
you know, um, doing things the right way, doing things for the right reason. Those are the things that are most important. And sometimes people lose sight of that. So having you here today, uh, speaking about that, somebody who's really, truly done it all and teaching those basic lessons about being a good person and being a good human, uh, that really, if you just follow those things, um, that can truly lead you to a, a, a fulfilling life is really what you're saying. Yeah, but you also really have to become powerful with your money. You really can never be dependent on anybody else to decide about your money. I remember Oprah saying to me, Susie, I sign every one of my paychecks, right? And all my money, not sorry, I sign every one of my checks that, you know, we give out. And I go, you do? And I thought to myself, that's why. She's powerful over her money. She's always been powerful over her money. So you all have to remember that you and your money are one. Your self-worth will determine your net worth. Your net worth plays back on your self-worth, believe it or not. So because you, you can't go out, your money can't come to you unless you've gone out and earned it. You decide, do you take a paycheck and invest it or do you waste it? So to be truly powerful and to become the women you are all meant to be, you have got to start getting powerful with your money, how you think about it, how you feel about it, and how you invest it. You can't, if you don't, you will never have as much money that as you are meant to have. such incredible um, advice for everybody. And I think you're going to change the lives of all my listeners. <laughs> Um, and you have your own podcast now that is specifically on um, money and it's called women yeah. and money podcast and the smart enough. I'm sorry. I'm going to say that again. Women and, <laughs> sorry. and the men right? women and money podcast and the men smart enough to listen. Yes. Um, and the reason that I named it that Arzo is that many women out there obviously are in heterosexual relationships with men. And if you're going to have a successful relationship with a man, then, then you have to be equal when it comes to financial stuff. And I never wanted to create a podcast that was just making women powerful. And now they're in relationship with a man. He's not powerful because all men are financial <laughs> fakers. Just trust me on that one, ladies. And so you know what you're doing and they don't. And then you start fighting about it. And then you write me and say, you have to get a divorce. Right. And I get so many emails from the men. All, and they all say this, so they all say, Susie, I'm one of the men smart enough to listen. Right. So whether you're in a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual relationship or whatever it is, please make sure that your spouse or your partner, that you are on equal financial footing, not in terms of the money you make, but in how you treat each other with respect and the knowledge you have over your money that each of you have. You have to be equally powerful with money, no matter if one is making X and the other is making a half X, it should not matter. Who makes the most money in a relationship does not That's control the very, most power. Um, poignant. Um, and, and I think a lot of people can, can relate to that. Uh, so, so you're, you're very relatable. You're extremely relatable. Yeah. Um, you've got all these amazing books that people can, uh, uh, probably purchase on Amazon, purchase on the bookstore, uh, probably Amazon now. You know, the main one that women might want to get is the Women in Money book, right? Because um, 
that will take you through all of this. And it will, there's topics mm-hmm. in there that don't put yourself on sale. It's all these things. So the Woman in Money book, a number one New York Times bestseller, I think I revised it two years ago. Fabulous book. But if you have debt, don't go buying one of my books. When everything ends, just go to the library and take it out. You got that? If you have credit card debt, don't you dare go buying anything that I put I think out. We all need that lesson. <laughs> we all need that lesson right now. Um, so you heard it, ladies, here. Uh, Susie Orman talks about the right mindset, uh, having your values in line, integrity, compassion, and being empowered with your money. Um, if you want to listen to Susie and get to know her better, check out her books, listen to her podcast, Women and Money podcast, and the smart, I can't say this right, sometimes I do it wrong. <laughs> Women that- and Money podcast. <laughs> Women and Money podcast in the it's all right. smart enough to listen. Um, Susie, how can people stay in touch with you? The main way they should stay in touch really is through the podcast. We're creating, and it will be up in a little bit here, a women's community where uh, I'm going to be doing live streams. There's all kinds of things that will be happening there. Personally, I'd like to create the largest women community in the world because people listen to me from all over the world. And about everything, financial abuse, the past episodes, you can search the episodes, so that's going to launch here because we just were accepted by Apple Apps yesterday. So, so that's going to happen very shortly. But the main, my main love right now is the Women and Money podcast. Obviously, you can catch me on TV all over the place right now. But my main love is that. That is and amazing. Is You're right always just so generous free. in giving of your knowledge, uh, your experience uh, to help others. Uh, so you definitely have left a mark in this world um, as a, as a, as a woman, as, as a fan, um, just so, uh, proud, um, to know that there's people like you that are out there looking out for the rest of us. So thank you so much, Susie. And what is your Instagram? Um, I think it's called the real <laughs> Susie famous, Orman. You don't even know. <laughs> you know, I'm, remember I'm going to be, no, but you know, well, actually though, I am the one who does it, you know, I'm going to be 69 in June. And so I still do these social media things and everything, but my real medium is I want to talk to you. I want to hear from you. I want to be able to communicate with you and you hear my voice because that's when the magic happens. But it is the real Susie Orman. That is my Instagram account. And I do show pictures of my family and all kinds of things. So you can get to know the real side of Susie Orman, but I, I love that. And I actually saw your Instagram today. Orman. It's your, it's your uh, great nephew's birthday today. Elliot. Elliot's going to be six years of age today. So <laughs> he loves Pluto. That was really cute. I saw that. Pluto more than this kid. <laughs> Honest to God. I mean, it's, he talks to his Plutos and I'm like, great. It's like, why not? Why Pluto? Let him be real. What do well, I happy care? Happy birthday but, to Elliot. And you yes, guys have to Elliot's go on uh, Susie's podcast or her um, Instagram. It was really cute. She did this cute video walking on the beach. She picks up this bottle and says, oh, there's a message in a bottle. Opens it up and it and unrolls this this little scroll. And it's a picture of Pluto. And it's, and it's a happy birthday message to her uh, nephew, which I thought was just so sweet. And it just shows how just down to earth you are and, 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 and what a kind and good human being you are. So 
You know, just one very quick thing about that. In my family, I have many nieces and nephews, mainly on KT's side. KT and I have been together now for 20 years. None of us are allowed to ever buy a present for one another. For all these years, whether it's birthdays, Christmases, Hanukkahs, it does anniversaries, weddings, no cash gifts can be given. So that picture that you saw there, KT drew that for Elliot. So every, and these kids now that have grown up that my Travis and Sophia that are now 18 and 21, fabulous human beings, fabulous. And they really know the value. Well, you've given them the greatest gift that they could probably ever get in this world. Um, that, you know, thank you so much for just everything, taking the time to, to talk to me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still small, small peanuts over here, small potatoes. So <laughs> I really, truly appreciate this. <laughs> yeah. But Arzo, I want you to remember that, by the way, you know, because people will say, well, Susie, why are you giving this interview? You know, you have like, truthfully, as I've been watching my phone, you know, in CNN, NBC, all of them said, when can you do another interview for us? And I'm like, I can't talk to you right now in my head because I'm on the phone with Arzo. But here's what's important about that. As you get really big, Arzo, and you get really famous, never forget those that are starting out like you or where I was. And that's why I give an interview to anybody really who requests it when it makes sense. It fits with the brand, right? I always do it because I remember when I just wished anybody would interview me. Can somebody recognize me? And therefore you always have to recognize those. Thank that you so much for, for giving me that opportunity. It, it truly, you know, it means the world to me. I, I didn't even know you were going to respond back to me. I just threw it out there. I said, God, this would be the greatest thing ever. And I heard back from your publicist and I thought, whoa, this is not really happening. She's going to cancel. And you didn't. So I'm just, uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no. Yeah. And the publicist <laughs> was like, and why do you want to do that? And I said, look at the title. She's a sexy babe. She's a sexy boss babe. I love that title. That shows a woman with gumption. Let's do it. You are just so amazing. I so appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Our website is www.sexybossbabe.com. Our Instagram is at the sexy boss babe. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. If you like that episode, share it with a friend and subscribe to the Sexy Boss Babe podcast on Apple Podcast so you don't miss out on future great interviews and topics. And leave a review. I promise to read it.